Welcome to Agatha Christie She Watched, the spoiler-heavy podcast in which we talk about Agatha Christie movie adaptations. This is Bill Peschel from Peschel Press, and this week we're talking about poor relations who become wealthy, cheating husbands and wives, powerful American businessmen, and a train that's not the Orient Express. It's The Mystery of the Blue Train, the 2006 adaptation starring David Suchet as Hercule Poirot. But first, let me introduce to you my partner in marriage and crime of the fictional sort, Teresa Peschel. Teresa, how are you doing? Hi, Bill. It's always a thrill to be here with you in your little tiny cubby office under the stairs, the one that does not have a window, because, well, it's where it was. We've had a wonderful Sunday breakfast that can't be beat, and last night we saw The Mystery of the Blue Train. And what did you think of it, dear? I really enjoyed it. It was it was changed quite a lot in some respects from the novel, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And one thing I have to say about watching the adaptations is sometimes you are actually better off not having read the novel. So you don't see the changes. They don't matter to you. And this works very well when the movie works on its own terms. When the movie fails, then you really notice that they should have stuck closer to Agatha's text. But the changes that they made, I felt they worked well for the movie. They worked very well for the movie, even though it was not necessarily a uh, letter-perfect rendition of the novel. This was an interesting episode because it's based off of a novel Agatha Christie wrote back in 1927, published in 1928. And it involved a time of her life that was really not good for her. She was very traumatized. The 11-day disappearance and the worldwide publicity that followed just drove her absolutely nuts. The death of her mother, the failure of her marriage. She wrote in her autobiography, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, I know you love correcting me when I'm wrong, but um, if I remember correctly, she said that the mystery of the blue train is when she learned she was a professional writer because she didn't want to write, but she needed the money and this was her job. And so she got it done. On that basis, I could see that she's correct. But this was also a woman who before this point in her life, she had averaged about a novel and 10 short stories a year. So I think she's kind of, um, she, I can understand where she's coming from, but she was a professional writer pretty much from childhood because she was telling herself stories as a child wandering the grounds of Ashfield, her childhood home. Well, perhaps what made her think of herself as a, as a professional writer with Mystery of the Blue Train is for the first time she was having to support herself right. because previously when she wrote her uh, short stories and novels, she was married to Archie. But she was a married woman and her husband paid the bills. But now, as a, as a divorcee with a child, she had to pay the bills. And that meant if she didn't feel like writing, she had to write anyway. Now, what's interesting about Mystery of the Blue Train, I'm guessing here because, of course, I don't know Agatha's mindset. How could I? But she enjoyed rewriting stories that she had already written. She has taken uh, several of her short stories were reworked, sometimes radically, into a uh, novel. A really big one was, of course, Sparkling Cyanide, because it started out as Yellow Iris as a Poirot story, and then it was completely rewritten as a Colonel Race novel. There are plot points that remain similar, but the villain is different. Colonel Race shows up. A lot of different changes in the novel. And The Mystery of the Blue Train stems from the Plymouth Express. And this was a short story that she had written a couple of years before, and it involved a millionaire. 
his wayward daughter, her husband, her lover, and a jewel thief and a maid who stole jewels and who had a lover who was also a notorious jewel thief, fence, and murderer. So you may notice that there's a lot of similarities here. When Agatha wrote the Plymouth Express, it starts with a young naval lieutenant gets on the train heading out to Plymouth and discovers to his shock and horror and amazement, there's a body under the seat in his compartment. And it is, of course, Ruth Kettering, Rufus Fen Alden's daughter. And I, she may have changed the names a little bit. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. He discovers the body. He immediately calls the conductor. The proper authorities are notified. And then the lieutenant disappears from the story, despite the fact that he found a body on the train. He's not investigated. He doesn't do any investigating. Nothing. He just walks off screen because he has done his non-player character role, which is getting the story started. And I have to wonder... Agatha had to write a novel. She was contracted to write one. She needed the money. And she thought, you know, what happens if the person who discovers the body doesn't walk away? What if they are still part of the story? The Plymouth Express is hugely expanded into Mystery of the Blue Train. You don't get any naval lieutenants. Instead, you get Catherine Gray. She is a woman now about 30, and she has spent the last 12 years of her life. She made her debut. Her father lost all his money, the usual story that you get in a romance. She is now living as a companion. That's a very English thing where essentially an older, wealthy lady pays for a friend, a professional friend. She's not a lady's maid because she's of a similar class, which means that she can go with you to restaurants. She can go with you to parties. She can sit quietly out of the way. But every time you need a drinky winky, every time you need a shawl, every time you need some ice water, every time you need a book or a fan or whatever it is, you wave your fingers and the companion trots up and does whatever it is that you need to do and then sits back down quietly. But again, she's not a lady's maid. She's in this nebulous in-between space. So Catherine has been a companion to a cantankerous lady, an older lady in St. Mary Mead of all places. Her life is fading away before her eyes. She's 30 years old and then the old lady dies and she, Catherine, suddenly, to her amazement, is an heiress because the old lady gave her her two million pound estate, which Catherine did not know about. She did not know that the old woman was this rich, and neither, by the way, did the old lady's relatives. The adaptation removed a number of very minor plot threads, including Catherine dealing with the old lady's actual blood relatives, who were suddenly pushy and demanding once they discovered the old lady they had ignored had money. The adaptation removed the Greek jeweler to uh, thieves and kings and his daughter, and they specialized in high-end jewels like the Heart of Fire. That was completely gone. But the Heart of Fire remains. But the Heart of Fire remains. A lot of the detail about the master jewel thief named the Marquis, the name itself disappeared, although you still have the master jewel thief, but he is not being looked at from the beginning of the film, the way he is being considered from the beginning of the novel. So how much of the difference is there between the novel Blue Train and the Poirot episode we saw? A lot. There is a lot. Let's see. Let's start with Derek Kettering. Derek Kettering is, of course, Ruth Van Alden's husband. She married him a couple of years after she was 18. She, let me backtrack. When Ruth Kettering, when Ruth Van Alden was 18 years old, she was a headstrong girl. She's daddy's only daughter and he adores her. She 
was all set to run off with the Comte de la Roche, a much older, suave, sophisticated Frenchman. Agatha tells you in the text that every single thing about him, from uh, crown to toes, makes you think of an aristocrat, but he is actually the son of a corn merchant in uh, some dismal little French town out in the provinces. A self-made, self-made marquis then, I yes, guess. Yes, he is a self-made marquis, and she falls madly in love with him, but Daddy is able to put a stop to it. And Rufus Van Allen is a U.S. millionaire businessman tycoon in the movie played by Elliot Gould. Yes, and it was really interesting to see him come on stage and I kept thinking wow he really looks like Herman Munster (laughs) and I don't mean Herman Munster I mean Fred Gwynn Gwynn. he looks like Fred Gwynn it is just amazing how much he looked like that and and wonderful voice he did a great job he is an American so he actually sounded like an American for a change but daddy wants Ruth to marry well and she wants to choose her own husband instead of somebody that daddy would approve of but they both like the idea of her marrying into the uh, Leckenberry family. Leckenberry is uh, Lord Leckenberry, an earl of some kind, I think. And his son, Derek, is slated to become the next Lord Leckenberry when dad dies. And Ruth would, of course, become Lady Leckenberry. And so she did what Edith Wharton would know so well. She took her money and bought herself a titled husband in England. Now, this is the Kettering here. Derek Kettering. Yes, Derek Kettering. Kettering Kettering is the family name. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of times with the aristocracy, you'll have a family name and you'll have the name of the estate. So Leckenberry is the name of the title, but the Kettering family holds the title. So Derek is slated to be the next Lord Leckenberry when his father dies. And then when uh, that happens, Ruth will become Lady Leckenberry and she will have done what so many American heiresses have done, which is bought their way into a title. Except that they're... They're not getting along. They're not well suited for each other. In the novel, Derek doesn't want to divorce Ruth for... He has complicated reasons that aren't necessarily made clear. He is also not an alcoholic, the way you see in the film. Yeah, he's an alcoholic and a a compulsive gambler. Yes, an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler. And it seems like he actually does love Ruth. In the novel, I would say that it's a more complicated reaction. In the novel, he doesn't necessarily love Ruth, but he doesn't want to fail either. And he refuses the bribe of £100,000 from uh, Rufus Van Elden to divorce his daughter, which is exactly what you see in the movie. He is not going to do that. In the movie, it's more he seems really to love Ruth, even though she doesn't love him. In the novel, as I said, it's a more complicated relationship. And Derek Kettering tells Catherine that one of the reasons why the marriage failed is Ruth being the kind of American girl that she was. She married him and then expected him to jump when she snapped her fingers because after all he's bought and paid for and she doesn't see him as an individual and she doesn't quite seem to grasp that titled English gentlemen are entitled to their mistresses as separate from their wives They're so unreasonable I know so unreasonable you would but, all... <laughs> but she's also spoiled she's, she's also a spoiled. very spoiled woman where the film the film changed a lot of things it compressed things it made itself into its own movie but it worked on its own terms one of the major changes was putting everybody on board the blue train lady tamplin is 
Catherine Gray's first is is a relative of Catherine Gray's, and uh, she does see the story in the newspaper and say, "Oh my God, a distant relative whom I have never paid one minute of attention to is She's suddenly met only rich." Once. Yes, once. that I've only met once or twice, and I need the money. And so we're going to get to know Catherine much better. They were not on the blue train. They changed her fourth husband's name from uh, Chubby to Corky, and I think Corky actually works better. He's um. Absolutely a member of the Drones Club in uh, in, in Wodehouse. If you know your Wodehouse, he is a member of the Drones Club in good standing. And Corky is probably a nickname that uh, the rest of the drones gave him for some cute and amusing reason. So let's go ahead and go into the that little family group here. So we'll understand the relationships among everybody. Because you have Lady Tamplin, who's bright and brassy, and on her fourth husband, Corky. And then her daughter Lennox, Lennox. Uh, Lady Tamlin. There's you get a lot of backstory in the novel that you don't get in the film. But Lady Tamlin has married her way up into the world. She may have started as, uh, you know, like the vicar's daughter on the edge of the gentry. But in each case, she moved up. She's been widowed several times. She's never been divorced. She's always been widowed. And you think, oh, (laughs) perhaps she helped her husbands along with strenuous exercise. That's the implication is she helped her husbands along with strenuous exercise on a regular basis. So she married up and she married up and then she married Lord Tamlin and she was not going to give up her title. She had her one and only child with Lord Tamlin. Lord Tamlin was husband number three. And that is Lennox. Corky is husband number four and Lady Tamlin wanted a boy toy. That's what he is. He is her boy toy, and she's very fond of him, and he's fond of her, and he knows, as Lennox will tell you, which side his bread is buttered on, and he makes sure that he keeps Lady Tamlin happy, and it's he's perfectly happy with being a bought-and-paid-for husband in a way that Derek Kettering did not want to be a bought-and-paid husband, and I just now thought of that, that they actually make a really nice parallel between the two, because Corky is very happy being a paid, very happy being a paid companion, a mm. bought husband. Derek Kettering didn't want that. So Lady Tamlin has been living in the south of France for a number of years. And one of the things that she did during the Great Wars, of course, like many ladies, she opened her villa and used it as a convalescent hospital for veterans and soldiers of the war. And that is how she met Major Knighton. Major Knighton, who is now the assistant to Rufus Van Alden. In the novel, you get some backstory about Major Knighton and how he met Rufus Van Alden. They met in Switzerland. Major Knighton very subtly said, you know, I'm looking for a post. And Rufus Van Alden at the time happened to be looking for someone to help introduce him better into British society, somebody who knew the ropes. And as Major Knighton is like, but but I'm not a secretary. I don't know business. And uh, Rufus says, I have people for that. What I need is someone who can make introductions, who can smooth my way. In, in all of those cases when he discovers, I guess, that his money doesn't smooth the way as much as he thought it did. Major Knighton happened to have been at Lady Tamlin's convalescent hospital. He was injured and he limps permanently from his war wound. Although, as you find later on, maybe he doesn't because Lady Tamlin tells Poirot, I didn't think it was that bad. I thought the doctor didn't think it was that bad. And then, of course, Poirot also contacts the doctor on Harley Street who had treated him and finds out that, no, he shouldn't be limping. This is a strange thing. This is this is something that Poirot looks at in the novel. It doesn't come out in the film at all, which I think they didn't have the time. But it's one of the things that pins Poirot's attention onto Major 
Roger Knighton, why is this man claiming to limp when he doesn't actually limp? So we have two groups boarding the train to go to the south of France. And the blue train is an actual, it's like the Orient Express. That is the name of the train itself that makes the run from, I guess, Calais down to Nice and Monte Carlo in the south of France. Yes, it apparently swings all the way around Paris and makes stops like a milk run train would, which is where you have to stop at every little depot, no matter how teensy, in order to pick up and drop off. And uh, that's why it slows down going around Paris. And then it speeds up on its way to Nice. This is one of those books that it would help actually to have a map so that you can see how you get on the train at Calais and then swing all the way around Paris and then go all the way to the south of France. Yes. So we have a lot of tension. We have a comic tension with Lady Tamplin trying to ingratiate herself into Catherine Gray. Oh, yes. directing Lennox to, to come come to her at certain times and Corky to be there as well. She's trying to stage manage it and it's absolutely delightful. Oh, it is it is it is so amusing and she is so so much of force of nature that she has a huge party to welcome Catherine Gray to Nice society. Oh, but let's go into how does Poirot fit into all this? Oh, Poirot introduces himself to Catherine Gray in the restaurant, in a nice restaurant. This is after he has been dealing with uh, Rufus Van Alden and uh, Ruth. Yeah, because they spot him and And they they fangirl. She fangirls, Ruth fangirls all over Poirot and he is taken aback. One of the interesting things to watch in this movie is how Poirot seems much more isolated despite having crowds of people who know him, crowds of people who invite him out, crowds of people who fawn all over him. He seems alone in the crowd. And there are scenes where he is obviously out of place. And I don't, this has not happened previously in the series where he is alone in the crowd. But that's very much what happens because Lady Tamlin, I'm sorry, let me go back to Poirot introduces himself to Catherine Gray. He's already been irritated by Rufus von Alden and his daughter. He's been pushed into attending this glamorous birthday dinner for Ruth where she is wearing the heart of fire around her neck, a ruby the size of uh, a pigeon's egg. It's a big one. Looks like a great big piece of cut glass. And he's sitting off to the side and he notices a pretty young woman by herself past the first flush of uh, youth. And she is having some trouble ordering wine. And he goes over to assist her to show her how to do it in the kindest way imaginable. Very avuncular, as he says. She doesn't know how to taste the wine from the bottle and tell the waiter to pour. And she is so pleased to talk to Poirot. And of course, remember, Catherine Gray has been a companion, which means she is able to get along with people grouchy, unpleasant people really well, because that's the hallmark of a companion, is you can get along with people that no one else can. And she is very grateful for his help. She's pleased to meet him. She looks at her dress and says, this is the nicest dress I've ever worn that I haven't sewed myself. Because now suddenly she has money, and she tells him that she's going to Nice, and uh, he decides, you know, I think I should go to Nice. I will go along to Nice with you, because I like you. are a nice young lady. And she's going to be meeting these people, and she needs to know what to do in social settings, which fork to use. She's gone up in the world. Suddenly. Suddenly and dramatically. She was invited by Lady Tamlin, which is why she's going to Nice. What she doesn't know is that Lady Tamlin has come out on the train to meet her on the blue train so that she can work on her for money all the way to Nice. Now, the other person who shows up on the blue train, and her part was really radically rewritten, is Mirelle the Dancer. 
wonderful actress that they had playing uh, Mirel. In the novel, she's Derek's mistress, and he breaks it off with her in order to reconcile with Ruth. In the film, she's Rufus's mistress, and he uses her... And they could have spent a little more time on the plot with this because it did kind of come from out of left field. But Rufus pushes Mirelle, his mistress, to hit on Derek so that he can have proof of adultery for the divorce that he wants his daughter to get from Derek. And Mirelle is 40. She has been around for a long time. Uh, she has a conversation with Poirot about she has basically sold herself to nice gentlemen like him for decades. She, But she's getting older, too. And how long does she want to be some man's mistress? So she's on the train, too. Completely rewritten character. But again, within the confines of the film, it works. I just would have liked to have seen a little bit more of how Poirot, he is a real eavesdropper. He is a real listener in at uh, keyholes. He definitely peeks around corners so that he can see what is going on. But I really would have liked to have seen a little more of where he's getting this information from. And so it's all the setup for the murder that occurs on the train. Now, one of the changes a film made is they had Ruth and Catherine swap compartments which they did not do in the novel, but again, it worked and it allowed them to introduce another red herring. The entire backstory, by the way, of Ruth's crazy mother, that was that was a scriptwriter's dream. That was not Agatha. But Ruth and Catherine did have a conversation on the train because Ruth needed to unburden herself about wanting to go off with an unsuitable man and leave her husband, and Catherine was a sympathetic upper-class stranger to whom she could talk to and then walk away knowing that nobody would ever say anything. Now, swapping the train compartments meant that they were able to introduce the possibility that it was Catherine who was going to be the murder victim all along. Now, one of the really important points in the novel that they did not do in the film, and this was the issue that Poirot had all along in looking at the facts as opposed to the lies that people told him, is why was Ruth Kettering's face smashed in? She wasn't just strangled. She had her face beaten in. And you only beat somebody's face in for one reason, and that is so that they cannot be identified. But why wouldn't you want to identify Ruth Kettering? Mm -hmm. Especially when everybody on the train knows who she is, knows who she who she looks like. Yeah, everybody on the train knows who she is. Everybody knows what she looks like. Why would you smash her face in so that she couldn't be identified? And this is the thing in the novel he keeps coming back to as the entire crime hinges on she couldn't be recognized. She couldn't be recognized despite the fact that everybody knew who she was. They didn't make a big deal of it in the film, and I think that that was a weakness because it was a really good point. Why would you do this? There was a suggestion that it wasn't Ruth at all. And that's why they had to smash the face in so that it was somebody else. And then they kind of dropped that as well. They didn't. Uh, yeah, they didn't that. bring it out. And the reason being, of course, is that it was Ruth who was murdered. But the conductor who brought her dinner and spoke to her 
Didn't speak to her at all. Didn't speak to her at all. He spoke to her maid disguised as Ruth. And if he would have been asked to look at the body, he would have said, that's not the lady I brought the dinner to. Because Ada Mason maid did not look like Ruth Kettering, rich American heiress. She did not look the same. In the novel, Ada Mason has a much more complex backstory. She's actually a well-known actress and male impersonator named Kitty Kidd. You take a good actress and... They've got wardrobe, they do the hair. You still won't look the part to someone who knows them, but if you have, say, a train conductor who's got hundreds of people that he's dealing with on a daily basis, he's not going to know. What he's going to know, what he's going to be able to say is, yes, of course that must have been Ruth Kettering. She was dressed in Ruth Kettering's clothes. She had her hair like Ruth Kettering. She had uh, the jewelry of Ruth Kettering. She's in Ruth Kettering's compartment. She answered the door as, it must be Ruth Kettering, right? It looked like she also had like a scarf around her face as well. She did. She had some kind of a scarf on, you know, because it was a little chilly. The way it's filmed, you can see her down the end of the compartment and Poirot sees her, but he doesn't see her face. What he sees is the hair, the clothes, a woman down the end of the corridor. Why, it must be Ruth Kettering, right? But it's not. And that's why her face was bashed in. So let's go ahead and go to the conclusion where we get the Poirot. He gathers all the suspects on the train car. Yes, on the train car. And this is wildly different from the novel. But again, a film is different from a book. And what works in a book doesn't work on a movie. A movie needs drama. And the ending in the book is not suitably dramatic for the movie climax. So Poirot's got everybody on the train. He accuses everyone in turn, Lady Tamlin, who is forced to admit, and she does it proudly, you know, yes, I'm broke. No, I was not going to murder Catherine. I had no intention of murdering Catherine. I wanted to hit her up for a loan. <laughs> she, she was a hoot. All the way through. Corky is, uh, as I said, clearly a member in good standing in the Drones Club, and he admits that they're broke, and uh, he found this beautiful piece of cut glass in the gravel alongside the train where the Lecompte had thrown it. That's the fake heart of fire, by the way. And... Because the comp wanted to steal it as well. But His that was main fun. reason for being there was, yeah, he would get he would get laid, but he wanted the heart of fire, and he had a fake heart of fire, and he would have swapped out the gemstones, and then disappear. And Ruth would either not say anything for embarrassment reasons, or if she did, well, it wasn't him. How could it have been him? And the, to go back, and this was a very nice touch because Derek and LaRoche were gambling and Derek owed LaRoche a lot of money. And so to wipe out the bet, he gave her the con, he gave him the con, uh, combination to the safe that Ruth was using to store the gem. Yes, exactly. And he even said as a card counter, and this is something in blackjack where you are counting cards. You have to have a, a head for figures because you're keeping track of what cards were played when Ruth was using the safe he could count the clicks and that's how he got the combination i thought that was a very clever way of handling that yeah that was very clever that was very clever but as poirot figured out when he was doing the summing up derek may have deduced the combination but the two people who really knew the combination were of course ruth 
and her maid. maid because the maid has to open up the safe in order to get the jewelry to lay out for Madame to choose what she's going to wear. So Poirot goes through one by one. He accuses Lecomte and Lecomte, who is very eager to avoid a murder charge, admits that he had brought a fake gem and he dropped it. He, 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 tossed, he, it he tossed it away and it was then found by Corky, who <laughs> needed to have a an anniversary, a third anniversary gift for uh, Lady Tamlin. And he sees this beautiful piece of fancy glass and he thinks this is perfect. And she's thrilled that uh, he got her this beautiful piece of, of ruby red glass. He had to do it because he forgot the anniversary as well. So there's even a little domestic byplay going on. There yep, too. He was absolutely thrilled to pieces with it. And they were both thrilled to pieces. Lennox was amusing. She recognizes her mother and Lennox is a, a really fabulous character. She is one of those that if Agatha had been more of a thinking in terms of writing extensions and series and sequels, she would have done a lot more with Lennox Tamlin. Great character, amusing, dry, clever, snarky. She would have been very modern, very much fits into a modern way of thinking. But as I said, Poirot goes down the list of suspects one by one and eliminates the possibility of it being Catherine who needed to be murdered. It had to be Ruth and it had to be because of the heart of fire. It was a theft. Theft was the underlying issue. And then he turns to, oh, sorry, leading up to the denouement on the train is when a mysterious stranger breaks into the villa where in Lennox and Catherine's bedroom where they're going to bed and tries to murder Catherine in her bed. Lennox, like a wildcat, leaps on her and bites her on the neck, screaming like a banshee to make sure the rest of the house shows up. The only person who did show up is Poirot, and I guess that's because Lady Tamlin and Corky were, were busy. They were busy or they were drunk. <laughs> they were busy or they were drunk. One of, or both, who knows? He's like 25 years old, drunkenness probably doesn't affect him. But who was the person who attacked Sorry. Catherine and then escaped? And Poirot reveals that it was Ada Mason, the maid. Why would Ada do this? Because Ada loves Major Knighton, and Major Knighton has fallen in love with Catherine Gray, who is, let's face it, she is much prettier than Ada Mason, and she is probably younger, and she is rich. Catherine Gray would allow Major Knighton to possibly continue on with his his uh, uh, secret identity as Major Knighton and still remain a jewel thief mm -hmm. in his spare time. That's who masterminded all of this. It was Major Knighton. He is an international jewel thief. He is well known for stealing. Again, there's a lot of backstory in the novel that didn't make it into the text. He even has a code name that is known to uh, Interpol uh, or whatever they called Interpol in um, 1926. And the French police and the English police, the Marquis, a gentleman. People know he's a gentleman, but he couldn't possibly be the rather dull Major Knighton who limps as a result of his war wound, but it is. Which is a familiar fictional trope back in the day, if you know your Raffles stories. Major Knighton, when he is accused, when, when Poirot is accusing him, he snatches Catherine, who is sitting next to him, because that's the other thing that the film did, that the uh, novel did. The film removed the love affair between Derek and Catherine. Catherine is actually the point of the triangle, with Major Knighton at one side and Derek Kettering at the other. And as you're reading this, you're thinking Major Knighton is a really nice guy, and Derek Kettering is uh, everything that is loche and bad about the aristocracy, and you know who's going to make a bad husband because you've already seen it with Ruth 
But that all went by the wayside. And again, you've only got 90 minutes. So she's sitting next to Major Knighton, who is being very protective because it's clear that he's falling in love with her. Poirot accuses him and Major Knighton leaps to his feet and is holding something razor sharp against Catherine's throat. And why did someone attempt to stab Catherine? Why did Ada Mason do this? Because she loves Major Knighton too, and she was jealous. Poirot also makes the uh, observation that Knighton and Mason, they were thrill killers. They were not just cold professionals. They did this because they enjoyed it. And and you get a, a flash of them really enjoying killing Ruth Kettering. And I can see why a lady's maid would be really enjoy killing her mistress when she is uh, high-handed and rude on a regular basis. But at the same time, very few people, even if you are pissy and resentful, you're not going to murder your employer. So Knighton is dragging Catherine down the hall, down the corridor, trying to find a way off the train. Yes, he leaves the maid behind to her fate with the French police because he doesn't care about her. He's, he has to save his own skin and he's using Catherine as a hostage, holding something very you know, a sharp edge, something against her throat. They don't want Catherine to die. So nobody tries to take that perfect shot to shoot Major Knighton through the head. And of course, this is also on a train corridor. So we're talking a really tight space. They don't have a lot of space. They're in what looks looks like the lounge car. Major Knighton drags Catherine off the train. Well, he's trying to, but he can't because they stay on the train and Poirot is trying to reason with him because he's looking, he looked out one side and there's the platform with all the French gendarmes looking, looking for anybody. And then on the other side is the railroad track with the train approaching yes, off in the distance. Yes, with an oncoming train. An oncoming train. And you can start to see the end point here. And, and Major Knighton makes his choice. Because Poirot says... You are known as an international jewel thief. Do you want to be known for more than that? Do you want to be known as a killer? And he has to make a choice. Yes, he, he does. He has to make a choice. And so what he does is he, he shoves the, uh, the razor blade into Catherine's hand and then shoves her towards Poirot and then steps out of the train in front of the other oncoming train holding the gem no because Catherine had it in her hand oh, that's right you're right you're yeah right. he gave it he to gave Catherine it yeah that's right he gave it to Catherine and he 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 lets himself be run over by a train rather than be arrested because there may not be any proof of uh, the other murders you know probably after the fact you'll go work on it but he he dies in front of the train he frees Catherine and then Catherine is obviously very shaken up and she opens up her hand and there's what he was pressing to her throat the heart of fire ruby Just keep circling back to the heart of fire ruby when the story finishes up the uh you don't know what happens with Derek kettering i guess he goes back home to england he is now two million pounds richer because ruth had not made a new will and as her legal husband he inherited her two million pounds he doesn't get the rest of rufus von alden's estate who is probably rewriting his will even as we speak because he's not going to give his money to his daughter's worthless husband the Tamplin household is, they probably have gotten a check, a nice check from Catherine, and they're very happy, and they've invited her back to stay anytime. And she's talking to Poirot that she wants to travel, and she's going to go travel on the Orient Express. And this is something that Agatha did. You have money, you have some freedom, and you think, what do I want to do? I really like traveling. Despite everything that happened on board the train, it was exciting. It was fun. I was living in a way that I have not lived before. It was dramatic. And I'm going to travel. This is something that was added to the script because it wasn't in the novel, right? In the novel... 
Catherine, during the climax, I think she's in St. Mary Mead. She's in St. Mary Mead, and oh. Derek Kettering goes off to St. Mary Mead. I kind of like that when Guy Andrews rewrote the ending, he included something that in a way you could see Agatha writing. Oh, yes, very much so. You can see Catherine as being a lot like Anne Bedingfield. From Man in the Brown Suit. From the Man in the Brown Suit, yes. A young woman who seeks adventure and romance. The only reference you get in the last five chapters is that Derek Kettering is going to St. Mary Mead to meet Catherine. And you assume, because they've met each other repeatedly through the novel until they both end up on the blue train. You know, one of those, your eyes meet across a crowded room and you know you're strangers and you'll never see that person again. And then you see them again a couple days later at the travel agent. And then you see them a couple days later getting on board the train and you think... Oh, it's almost like it's fate. And this is better. The one thing that was really impressive about all this after we've seen like 170 of these is just how many strong women's roles there are, especially in this one. Oh, my gosh. The men really take second seat because you've got Ruth Kettering, who is very much her own woman, even though she, well, she doesn't think things through. Uh, she wants what she wants, but she's very much her own person. Uh, Ada Mason, the maid. Again, she is more complicated than just a maid because she tries to murder Catherine, even despite the risk that it would put on her and Major Knighton because she is so angry. She is so jealous. You have Catherine herself, who is a woman no longer in the first stage of youth, whose world has suddenly opened up dramatically from being a companion. You have Lady Tamlin, who fully embodies the sensation that if I'm an aristocrat, then I set the scene, I make the rules, and I'm going to do what I want. And her daughter Lennox, who looks at mom with a very clear eye, oh, she's going to hit you up for money. She does what she wants. I love mummy, but I recognize that she's unscrupulous about money. And Lennox is just great fun as well by herself. Yes, she is her mother's daughter. Lennox deserves a TV show of her own. <laughs> she deserved a series. <laughs> she deserved a book of her own, but Agatha didn't do that. So I guess that's up to the fan fiction writers of the world. And then there's Mirelle as well, who only gets like one major scene in this, but she is. She makes a very strong impression on Poirot. She makes a very strong impression on the audience. Again, this is where if the movie could have been just a little bit longer, we would have seen more of Mirelle and Rufus Van Alden and why Poirot knew that she was Rufus's mistress and not just because the plot told him. He pulled out that little slip of paper from his boutonniere vase and read the directions. I would have liked to have seen more of Mirelle. Uh, the entire added story about Ruth's mother's being this crazy woman who's now a nun in a French convent was kind of strange, but uh, okay. Gave Morel something else to do as well. Another clue for, and another clue for Poirot to, to suss out. So. Yes, it did. And oh, by the way, also the entire backstory about Catherine, her, fa her father committing suicide because he had sold his company to Rufus von Alden, who then fired all of the workers despite swearing that he wouldn't. That was completely made up too. Uh, Catherine Gray had had nothing to do with the Von Van Alding household in any way, shape, or form. But we've seen this kind of connection dredged up in previous Agatha Christie novels and in previous adaptations, so I see where they got it from. Now, this is all part of a series. Mystery of the Blue Train was the start of Series 10 for Poirot that uh, appeared in 2006 and followed the Series 9 from 2003-2004, which has some very strong 
episodes. Five Little Pigs, Sad Cypress, The Hollow, Death on the Nile was among them. Which I didn't like that much. I think if you're going to watch Death on the Nile, watch the Peter Ustinoff version. And I am, by the way, folks, including the um, Kenneth, Sir Kenneth Branagh version. The Ustinoff version really is the best. These are some very, very strong episodes. And I think with Mystery of the Blue Train, in a way, it's more of a movie-length version of the hour-long Poirot's. This is not as emotionally deep as Five Little Pigs or The Hollow. Well, having the uh, wild party at Lady Tamlin and the, the, the really nice birthday party gala that Ruth Kettering has, you know, a lot of dancing, a lot of music, great 30s jazz music all throughout, wonderful, wonderful music. I don't usually notice the music as anything like other than wallpaper or it's bad music, 80s TV movie music that says, oh my God, here comes something scary. Oh my God, here comes something romantic. Get ready, folks, because here it comes. Almost there. Oh my God, here we are. Um, this had a great score. And yes, there was a lot of froth and fizz and effervescence. And at the same time, Poirot is outside of it all. He's the observer. He's the observer. Even in the party. Even, Even in, in the, the party Especially at the in the parties. Especially in the parties. He is the observer. And it was so clear that he was the observer in a way that he has not been in previous episodes. He is being isolated. And I I guess we'll see more of that in the upcoming episodes. I have no idea. But he is clearly being more isolated here than in anything we've seen to date. And this is not to say this is inferior to The Hollow or Sad Supers. I think it's just on a, on a par with them. I think this is an excellent episode. Excellent episode. Well it's worth watching. It's just from a different different earlier hearkening back to the earlier Poirots that were amusing and at the same serious at the same time yes a serious and amusing like a well I want to I won't don't want to say cozy because I would never say that Agatha Christie wrote cozies because she didn't but it was more light-hearted and they they really treaded a very nice line between the seriousness of the murder of Ruth Kettering and the sparkle and effervescence and fizz of particularly the Tamlins, you know, Corky and Lady Tamlin, they are their own people and they're having fun. They're enjoying every moment of their lives, even when they are wondering how they're going to pay the tradesmen. And it's a different kind of humor than some of the later Ustinoff movies where he's being made a clown. He's, you know, people are bumping doors into him. Oh, terrible, terrible. Yes, a terrible appointment with death until I saw the Suchet appointment <laughs> with death, which was worse. <laughs> So I guess that answers the question of, uh, would you want to see this again? Would you want to recommend it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But go into it knowing it is its own thing. It is not a word-for-word, scene-by-scene retelling of the novel by any means, but it, it follows the main plot points. It has the same feeling. It has a lot of the same feeling throughout. It was charming, and it was improved in some ways, and it was its own thing. And it even had the South of France, which we didn't even get into. The beauty of Nice, <laughs> just like just like uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the remake. Yes, absolutely. It wonderful beautiful beautiful scenery well this brings us to the end of another episode of agatha christie she watched next time we're going to play a little game we're going to be playing bridge two hand double bridge with poirot three other detectives and three murderers yes yes it'll be cards Cards on on the the table table. ariadne oliver i'm looking forward to seeing i haven't seen much of the zoana maker except for uh dumb witness no was it dumb witness no it was the no it was dead man's folly dead man's folly that's right the murder game so i'm looking forward to seeing more of her and we'll see you again next time thanks for joining us folks agatha christie she watched 
is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel. Produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email Peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.